55-year-old Roger Wheeler was a respected businessman and self-described strong Presbyterian who had growing doubts about his gambling-related investment. And today, authorities are trying to decide if that investment paid off in his death. There are times when I'm reading or hearing about something shocking, like the murder we're going to talk about today, when strange details stick in my head. The things that I remember most vividly are not necessarily what you'd expect, not the main story, but these little side details. In the case of Roger Wheeler, the millionaire businessman who was murdered in the parking lot at Southern Hills, the famous club in Tulsa, Oklahoma, this was May 1981, there's a lot to digest, but I can already tell what's probably going to stay with me forever is the fact that it was witnessed, among others, by an 11-year-old girl. She was at the swimming pool. Apparently, she was on the diving board with a view to the parking lot. And according to the detective who worked this case for literal decades, she was one of the best witnesses they had. Clear-eyed, good memory. And of course, as in all cases like this, every witness saw something different. You know, The details didn't match up between them. You know, the man who pulled the trigger was black. He was Cuban. He was white. But this girl, you know, she happened to be the daughter of a former FBI agent. Another one of those weird coincidences that seem to always happen. And I can't explain quite why, but it's fascinating and sad and maybe disturbing to me that this girl had to see this. You know, on an ordinary summer day at this club. Had to be interviewed by police. Some of us listening have kids, all of us were kids. It's not the worst thing ever to happen to a kid, let's be upfront about that, but it's not good. And it's pretty easy to imagine a shattering of innocence there. And you think, you know, okay, this was 1981. This girl, if she's alive today, would be around 54 years old. How did that afternoon change her life? Does she still think about it? Does she read the stories that come out sometimes, even still today, about Roger Wheeler? And there's a quote from that homicide detective. I mentioned his name is Mike Huff. He's going to figure pretty largely in the story. He was only 25 at the time. He spoke about that girl and the other witnesses to the murder. And he said, quote, This stayed with them for a while. The fear of the power. The powers that can reach out to somebody. They reached out to Oklahoma, and that was powerful right there. Invaded Southern Hills. End quote. We don't know that girl's name, but we know what she saw. And what she saw was one man, a man named Johnny Martirano, wearing a hat along with a wig and a fake beard that he'd bought at a theatrical store in Tulsa. He drove into the club, drove into Southern Hills, which seems like it maybe had a guardhouse at the time, but if it did, there was definitely nobody in it. So this famous club, it's been around since 1935. It's hosted a ton of majors, most recently, of course, the 2022 PGA Championship that Justin Thomas won. This club was openly accessible to anybody. And Martirano was with an accomplice named Joe McDonald, and McDonald had a machine gun at the ready, just in case afterward they got stopped by cops and had to shoot it out. But Martirano just had a 38 snub nose revolver, his weapon of choice. And these guys were not local. Nobody had seen them before. Nobody would have recognized them, even without their disguises. They had been in town for a couple of days. They weren't going to stay much longer. Martirano sat in the passenger seat of their brown Ford. McDonald was driving. They knew Roger Wheeler's car, a Cadillac, and they found that in the parking lot, parked close to it, and waited. This was a Wednesday. Wheeler always played golf on Wednesdays, usually got a drink after. 
and it was a few minutes after four when he walked out of the locker room to his car. The description Martirano had vaguely matched the man he saw, so after he walked by their car, Martirano got out, fell in behind him, and waited to see if Wheeler would go to the Cadillac. If he didn't, if he went to another car or walked on by, Martirano would keep walking, but if he did, there was a different plan. Wheeler went to his car. And from the descriptions when you hear them today, it sounds like he was almost far enough ahead of Martirano to close the door. But as he did, Martirano reached out, he grabbed the door, Wheeler jumps back in shock, and Martirano shoots him once in the middle of the head. This was not Martirano's first rodeo. He knew how to kill, and in this case, one shot did the job. And if it hadn't, he was in trouble, because there is another detail that is so interesting here, which is that after they found Wheeler's body, they also found four live cartridges inside the car. And the theory or the suspicion for a long time was, you know, this is some kind of signature of these killers. And when I say a long time, let me tell you, Dave Kindred wrote about this in 2001 for Golf Digest. That's 20 years after the murder. And he was still saying then, you know, maybe this was their calling card. The way that they let you know that they had done the killing. You know, we dumped cartridges on the body. In fact, much later, after Martirano was caught and spoke about the killing, it came out that after one shot, this gun completely fell apart. It was a faulty revolver. All the live rounds fell into the car, and he didn't have time or probably, you know, the inclination. He didn't care enough to retrieve them before they got out of Dodge. So this gun had one shot in it. And if that one shot hadn't killed Wheeler, there wasn't going to be a second shot. But it did, and that's why the bullets were all over the car. So the two killers left, returned the rental car, dumped the gun in the Arkansas River, got on a plane to Fort Lauderdale. The gunshot was described, you know, like the sound of a firecracker, as it often is. And a man named George Matson, who is the shop manager, he came out and he was the one who found the body. Roger Wheeler was 55 years old, and his death had both an immediate and a lasting impact on the club and on his community. And what nobody knew then, you know, Matson or the police or anybody of the witnesses who saw this thing go down, none of them knew, nor could they have known, that this murder involved one of the most notorious organized crime figures of the 20th century. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge. Happy New Year. Happy 2024. When I pitched this topic, this story of Roger Wheeler in Southern Hills, my editor Sam liked the idea, but his only objection was, okay, we've done a few of these shows with crime angles. Last year, we did one about the hostage situation with Ronald Reagan at Augusta National. We did one on the Deepdale sandbag scandal from Long Island. Late last year, we talked about the con artist John Montague. You know, maybe, maybe we're doing a little bit too much of this crime stuff, but he was good with it, you know, just kind of flagging it. But as I researched this particular story, I realized, you know, he was right. This one is, <laughs> it's not even like the others. This one is taken to an extreme because there is very little about golf in this story. We should get that one out of the way. You know, Roger Wheeler was killed at Southern Hills. He was an avid golfer. But the scene of his murder and the fact that this was kind of his hobby is about as much golf as you get in this story. And I think it's an incredible story, which is why we're still doing it. But... I don't want to try, you know, to pull the wool over your eyes and tell you this is a golf story because it's more like a crime story with a little golf on the side, like the cranberry sauce at a Thanksgiving dinner. It's there, but it's, you know, it's not the turkey. So forewarned, I guess, is forearmed. But 
That being said, Roger Wheeler was a major part of the Southern Hills community. He did love golf. He was a 12th handicap. The day he was killed, he was playing a $1 Nassau with friends, including a guy he was thinking of buying a plane from. And here's what his son said about him. You know, this was from Dave Kindred's piece that we referenced above, the one from 2001. Larry Wheeler, his son, said, quote, He loved the game's strategy and competition and discipline. He worked at it diligently. He'd work the rules, the tee times, the best partner, so he'd have an edge. He had a shag bag, and he'd go out in the yard. We had seven, eight acres, and practice his short game, end quote. And, you know, part of the story and part of crime stories in general, especially this new genre of crime podcast that's so big that we're kind of dipping our toe into right now, is that we tend to view this stuff from a distance, don't we? You know, Roger Wheeler, this is some guy most of us haven't heard of who was murdered more than 40 years ago. And you have the mafia tie-in. Obviously, the mafia is a fascinating, might even say like a titillating subject for a lot of people, including me. But as much as possible... I would like to try, and I think it's worth keeping in mind, the human element. Roger Wheeler was a father of five. He left behind all his family. You can only imagine how devastating it was for them. 55 is a young age to die, especially for somebody like that who ran every morning, was concerned about fitness. You know, this guy was 5'10", 165 pounds, described as energetic. This was somebody you'd expect to have a long life, and instead, it was cut short. And one of the points made by the detective, Mike Huff, remember he was the guy who ended up working this case for a long time, was that Wheeler, among his other interests, was a chairman of a company called Telex, which employed about 5,000 people in Tulsa. And after he died, that went away. Those jobs were gone. And that's just a small taste of the impact his death had on a lot of people. Now, Roger Wheeler was a complicated figure as most people are who are worth over you know, $100 million, which he was at the time. This is somebody who is a natural businessman. He had an eye for money. If you go to his Wikipedia page now, there are stories about how he was making money from newspapers, stamps, even apparently a trucking concern when he was still in high school. And Wheeler was born in 1926, so he grew up during the Depression. And he was born and raised in Boston and Reading, Massachusetts, which is interesting for reasons we'll get into later. His father, the sources I read, he says he was a printer for the Christian Science Monitor. So that means, you know, Wheeler was, you know, middle class at best. For what it's worth, he was a Presbyterian, a staunch one by his own reckoning. This is even though he grew up in Boston, even though he went to Notre Dame, lived in some very Catholic milieus throughout his life. And Catholics, as it turned out, would figure very heavily in his demise. But you read his bio, you read the New York Times stories that come out after he died, and it's clear that, you know, the defining characteristic of this guy is that he was a continuously successful entrepreneur. He had ups and downs, sure, but in general, his trajectory, when you measure it by money anyway, just goes up and up and up. You know, his personality, what was that like? Well, he was described as tenacious and aggressive. Dave Kindred and his story, among a few more favorable adjectives, also included the word obnoxious in there, along with abrasive, discourteous. And that kind of exists alongside things like eminently fair and a good guy. So take all, you know, take what you will from all of that. But in 1949, still in his early 20s, he forms the Standard Magnesium and Chemical Corporation. 15 years later, he sold that for $50 million to Kaiser Aluminum. In the mid-60s, you know, he's back and forth between Tulsa at this time, but it seems like he moved there permanently then. And with some other investors, he purchased Telex which made sound equipment like speakers, hearing aids, things like that. 
He was the chairman and he was the biggest shareholder. One of the most notorious moments of this guy's business career came in 1973. He actually sued IBM for monopolistic practices. This is after Telex kind of dipped its toes into the computing world, and he won a judgment of $352 million, an astounding figure, but it was overturned on appeals. The upshot is that after kind of going back and forth, he had a judgment against him, but I think the settlement it, you know, came out in the wash that he ended up having to pay about a million dollars in legal fees, but it shows you how aggressive he could be. He wasn't afraid of anyone, including later when there were people he should have been afraid of. But beyond the magnesium, beyond Telex, this guy owned an oil company. He was involved you know, in an appliance distributor, a venture capital company, a realty company. He had his hand in a little bit of everything, and he seemed to be good at everything. The guy made money hand over fist. And again, he loved golf. Joined Southern Hills sometime around 1963. And one of his rituals, as described by his son, was that every two years he would buy a new Cadillac, drive the old one up to the new one, and move the clubs from one trunk to the other. Found a quote from a man who played with him. You know, this shows a little taste of how competitive he was, how, you know, the attitude that made him so successful in the business world carried over to the golf course. This man said, quote, In the club's big four-ball tournament, my partner and I had several short putts, normally conceded that Roger made us putt out. Then he came to the eighth hole and had a short one of his own. He just kept looking at us like, well... Finally, my partner says, go ahead, it's good. And I told my partner, the SOB won't give us anything. Why'd you give it to him? End quote. As we said, and it's sort of macabre to talk about it this way, but it was his love of golf that provided the avenue for his murder. And what I mean by that is that it turns out a golf course is a pretty good place to murder somebody, especially somebody who has started to suspect, as Wheeler did, that he might be in some danger and who's starting to take precautions and to take security pretty seriously. The golf course, even a place like Southern Hills at that time, is open. People are not in their guard, and the men who killed him picked it out as the ideal place to do what they did. Now, we've waited long enough for this part. The big question, why did they want to kill Roger Wheeler? And in fact, it was because of a different sport, and that sport was high lie. 1978 comes along. Wheeler is already extremely rich, extremely successful. He's in his early 50s, and he decides to buy an organization called World Highlight. Now, you get different reasons for why he wanted to do this. Some sources say, well, he's at the point in his life where he's got a lot of money. He wants to do something a little bit fun, a little bit different. He himself claimed it was just an investment, you know, something he thought could make him a lot of money. He wasn't particularly a Highlight fan by any means. And it's kind of interesting to look back now. Highlight is basically dead in the U.S. There was a 30 for 30 about it on ESPN, which is fun and worth watching. It's short. But basically what you have to know, this is a, a Basque sport originally. That's where it was invented. You wear these baskets on your hand. They're called Zestas. You throw a ball against the wall. Um, you may have heard the speeds the ball can travel are obscene, you know, well over 100 miles per hour. And again, the sport's basically dead now. It was never huge in the U.S., but it did have pockets in the 70s, especially, where it loosely thrived. And you know, hopefully thrived isn't too strong a word. Uh, but there was a highlight culture. And in particular, that was true in Miami, Florida. And the reason for its popularity was, again, not necessarily that it was a fascinating spectator sport or that anybody really liked it, but that you could gamble on it. And I'm not going to go into the mechanisms of it, how it worked, because I don't know. 
and I don't think it's important, but suffice it to say, this was a sport that happened to be very conducive to gambling. And it was individuals playing, you know, it was human beings, so there was also this reality that you could fix it. You know, think of it at the time as the version of horse racing or dog racing, but where the competitors are people, people that you can get to. And there was money to be made from that. And when there was money to be made gambling, and especially when you could use the human element to influence the outcome, well, guess who else is there? The mafia. They were all over this thing. At this point in the story, I think a fair question to ask is how much Roger Wheeler knew about mafia involvement in High Lie. In other words, did he know what he was getting into? Here again, you kind of get different answers depending on where you look. On one hand, Mike Huff, the investigator, he called him a patsy in this deal. You know, somebody who didn't really know what he was getting into and was sort of set up like a, you know, convenient front man. We'll get this guy from Oklahoma in. Uh, you know, he'll be the face of the organization. Everybody's going to look at him and behind the scenes, you know, we're going to do the dirty work. We're going to steal the money. But on the other hand, the New York Times reported that he appeared in front of the Connecticut Gaming Policy Board because one of the organizations he bought, Hartford Highlight, that's different than the Florida Concern, you know, there were apparently questions about the people he was associating with, one of whom was a man named Jack Cooper, who was friends with Meyer Lansky, who those of you who are, you know, sort of mob aficionados like me a little bit, this guy was a famously mob-connected person who built a whole gambling empire. So, you know, Wheeler was questioned on the associations he had, and in fact, even though that policy board voted three to one that he was in the clear, he ended up selling Hartford Highlight a few months before he died, sold it for $13 million. And he was also being investigated by the SEC at this time for potentially misusing Telex company funds. The Times reported that eventually they made him pay back something like $37,000 to his company. Kind of a minor thing, but there, there are, you see, some interesting elements here where it makes you push back maybe a little bit against the narrative that, you know, sure, he's rich, he's successful, but he's a little naive when it comes to this part of the world. And he may have been. But I guess my point is Roger Wheeler doesn't in general seem like a naive human being. So it's all a little hard to say. It's hard to say in the end. But World High Lie, which again, this is in Miami, took in about $150 million in what they call paramutuals, which is basically the total amount that's gambled over the course of a year. And the house, in this case, took 12% of that. So, you know, just looking at those numbers, it's almost $20 million in revenue. Not bad. And how this comes about, this purchase, according to Mike Huff, who, by the way, Huff did this great long interview with a site called Voices of Oklahoma that is just uh, apparently, you know, long oral histories of key events in the state. And it's a wonderful resource. It makes you grateful for resources like that because Huff spells out this entire case. If you, you know, if you end up listening to this podcast and saying, I'm still interested, I mean, that very much worth your time to read that. So anyway, Huff says that there's a man named Dave McCowan who is with First Bank of Boston. And he was responsible for directing Wheeler to this particular investment. Purchase price of World Highlight was around $55 million with a good deal of interest. So, you know, this is not without risk, but McCowan was basically telling Wheeler, this is an unbelievable investment. You know, the founders are getting ready to sell it. And one of them, a man named John Callahan, who's another Boston guy, he was in charge of the CEO search. He had actually done the search a few years earlier and somehow, you know, chose himself. He became the CEO. I guess he searched and found that he was the best guy for the job. But John Callahan is an important name to remember because not only was he kind of the organizing force behind World Highlight, but he had a bad habit of associating with mobsters. 
So eventually he was forced out because of those connections, but managed to kind of finagle it so that a business partner of his would become president. And that man was the president when Roger Wheeler bought World High Lie. And now we're going to introduce another guy. And I know there are a lot of names here, but this guy is a massive figure in the story. And his name is Paul Rico. Rico is a retired FBI agent and not just any FBI agent, but a hugely successful and you'd almost say, you know, famous one within that world. He was a star. Mike Huff describes him as looking and acting like a mobster. He was big. He was kind of a bully. And one of Paul Rico's claims to fame as an FBI agent is that he sent Whitey Bulger to jail. Whitey Bulger, if you don't know, was the leader of the Winter Hill Gang, which is a sort of uh, Irish-affiliated Boston Mafia group. If you've ever seen The Departed, Jack Nicholson's character in that movie, that's Whitey Bulger. And Bulger was involved with his associates in everything from racketeering to extortion to money laundering to weapons deals to murder, you name it. He had his hands in a little bit of everything. And Rico in the 60s arrested him after seeing him at a bar. But when Bulger got out of prison, he and a few other members of the Winter Hill Gang became informants for Rico. And later for, you know, later a little bit more infamously for an FBI agent named John Connolly. And the deal was there, and we're speaking broadly here, but the deal was they would give them tips on the underworld, especially the Italian underworld, who were their rivals, and in turn, they would be insulated from prosecution for the abundant crime they were doing. And maybe they'd get a leg up on the Italians, too. And this system was in place for many years, and it seemed to work for everybody involved. So, let's leave that for now. That introduces Whitey Bulger to the story. But let's get back to World Highlights. So, Paul Rico, this ex-FBI agent, he's hired by Callahan, again, the former CEO, to be head of private security. And Rico himself ends up hiring some other ex-FBI guys... You know, he's staffing it with kind of with his cronies. And the irony of this is that it's part of what makes Wheeler secure. There's a quote from Wheeler in the Times where, he, you know, before he died, he said he, quote, felt comfortable surrounded by former FBI agents, end quote. And now he's awash in them. And he thinks that's a good thing. In Kindred's story, you know, his son even talks about how he was concerned originally. You know, why did Callahan leave as CEO? And he put these FBI guys to the question, and they said, no, no, there's nothing to worry about. So maybe, you know, he knows a little bit, Wheeler, about the seedy reputation of this enterprise he's in, how there is mob involvement and all that. But it seems like he thinks, you know, this FBI presence and all their reassurances mitigates that, makes it okay. You know, I've got former FBI guys. I'm fine. Well, he's not fine. In fact, Paul Rico is a criminal. And what he does, according to Mike Huff, what he does along with his business partner, Callahan, and whoever else was part of it, they were skimming money from the company, perhaps up to a million dollars a year. And it's a little uncertain exactly what was happening, the mechanisms of it. it. It kind of became unimportant later because it was all about the murder. But Huff's interviewer, you know, asked him, is it true part of this came from parking lot revenue at World High Lion? He said, yes, probably that was happening. But again, it doesn't, it's not the most critical part of the story. Is what's more important is what comes next. And that's Wheeler you know, who spent so much money to buy this thing and was getting hit by the interest, started to figure things out. Now, earlier I said that Huff called Wheeler a patsy, but there's important context there. Huff's full quote is this, quote, Wheeler was a patsy in this deal, but he was a smart patsy, and he started trying to understand what was going on around him, end quote. 
And to put it pretty simply, that would be his downfall. Now you have to imagine Wheeler, this brash, you know, quote, abrasive guy, always successful, always kind of has the bull by the horns. And now his own people are stealing from him. And he's no dummy, right? He starts to figure this out. One point, he even tries to get Paul Rico to take a polygraph. Eventually, he sends his son, David, down to Miami. And David is apparently this, you know, really sharp guy in computer analysis. He gets sent down in 81 to figure out where things are going wrong, where this money is disappearing. And around the same time, Callahan, realizing what was happening and that Wheeler is kind of sniffing them out and getting pretty close to the truth, he offers to buy the company back. Offers more than what Wheeler had paid for it. But Huff says that Wheeler, you know, sees this as an attempt to get rid of him. You know, push him out of the way. Let's be done with this guy. He's not the patsy we thought he was. Let's get rid of him. He's not going to have that. Especially because he sees how lucrative this business can be. So he's not going to be bullied. It's not in his nature. Which means you've got two things happening at once. He's pressing forward with the business. And he's pressing forward with an investigation. He's trying to nail the guys who are stealing from him. And he's going to be good at this, like he's good at everything. But the problem with Wheeler is that he is naive in a very specific way. And the way he's naive is that he doesn't realize that if he presses too hard here, these people are going to kill him. And that's a different kind of power, isn't it? You know, at the top, we, we had that Mike Huff quote where he was talking about how this murder scared people in Tulsa because it was the power reaching all the way out to them in Oklahoma there is a special kind of advantage you have and it's driven by money, but it also supersedes money when you're willing to murder somebody. And Paul Rico and John Callahan, they realize a couple things. First, they could lose this revenue source, all this money that they're skimming. Second, they could go to jail. And the fact is they know people who can kill Roger Wheeler. So we're in January, 1981. Callahan reaches out to a guy named Brian Halloran, this point we're getting into a lot of Irish <laughs> Irish names here Callahan Halloran so Brian Halloran is a Boston area hitman they knew he could do the job he was good at it but Halloran sees it as a messy kind of job right it involves travel to Oklahoma if something goes wrong it could really go wrong they could trace it to him he doesn't like the victim he's kind of out of the ordinary so he says no and the fate of Brian Halloran is actually a pretty good way to show you exactly how kind of screwed up this world they live in is now, the year after Wheeler died, Halloran was under the shadow of a murder indictment. He was out of jail at the time, but he was basically waiting to be charged and it didn't look good. So he thinks, you know, I'll go to the FBI. So he goes to them. He says, I've got some information on the murder of Roger Wheeler. They end up putting him in a protected house on Cape Cod. They got all his information, but they didn't share it, especially with Tulsa. And as it got further up the ladder, it got to John Connolly, who again, he's the FBI guy who was Whitey Bulger's handler. He didn't want his man to get busted. Certainly didn't want to lose all the information he was getting from Bulger. So what does he do? Well, he tells Bulger, you know, Halloran's going to rat you out. At some point, somehow the FBI let Halloran leave his safe house in Cape Cod. Bulger found him in South Boston outside a restaurant, pulled up alongside his car, shot up the car, killed the civilian that was riding with him, started to drive away, then realized Halloran had actually gotten out of the car, was staggering around, still alive. So he drove back and finished the job. And that was the end of Brian Halloran. So again, that's a year later. Let's go back to 1981. Halloran refuses the job in January. A couple months later, that's when David Wheeler started coming down that spring. 
And that's when everybody got very nervous, from Paul Rico to Callahan to Whitey Bulger himself, because if it wasn't obvious already, this money that they're skimming is, is done on behalf of themselves and the Winter Hill Gang. So Whitey Bulger's getting a taste of this. So they think, you know, this, this is becoming more urgent. All of a sudden, Roger Wheeler has got to go, and they decide to offer the job to Johnny Martirano. And one little detail I found interesting here is that Bulger was very hesitant about this. You know, of all the people involved, he was the least eager to see this thing go through. Because from what we can tell, a little bit like Halloran, actually, he had a bad feeling about it. It was complicated. This guy they were going to kill wasn't the sort of normal gangster they went after in Boston. He was in a different part of the country, a different kind of guy. And Bulger had this feeling that even though it wasn't going to be hard to kill him, that was going to be the easiest part. It could become a real problem for them over time. But his objections are small enough, and I guess the money is, is good enough that he's overruled. And so they call up Martirano. Now, the significant fact about Johnny Martirano at this point in his life is that according to him, he had murdered 18 people out of a total that would eventually be 20. You know, and Martirano is still alive today. He's out of jail. In fact, if you're interested, you can go watch a 60-minute segment about him from a few years ago where he talks about his life. He talks about the people he killed. And the reason he did 60 Minutes is that growing up in Rhode Island, he was a star football player on his school team. And one of his teammates was a man he called Big Ed. That was Ed Bradley, who later worked for 60 Minutes. And at one point, he promised Bradley he would do the show. This is after he got out of jail. Now, Bradley, unfortunately, at a relatively young age in 2006, he died of cancer. But Martirano kept his word. He did the interview with Steve Croft. And this idea of keeping your word you know, loyalty was critical to Martirano's entire worldview. And I realize any talk of this may sound strange for a guy who, by his own account, killed 20 people. You know, it's easy to scoff at any notions of, you know, even a, a different, oh, strange kind of morality. But there's something odd about Martirano, and you even see it in Mike Huff's interview with Voices of Oklahoma. You know, I don't know if like or respect is the right word, but there's an undeniable kind of affinity for him, a fondness, or at least an understanding. You can see it come through. You know, Huff has a quote. He says, quote, as sick as it may sound, Johnny is an honorable guy, end quote. And you kind of get the same thing on the 60 Minutes interview. There's a matter of factness about him that Croft at one point tries to spin his coldness, but it's not quite coldness. It's just that you look at him and you see a guy who is part of a very different world with a very different code of morality than me. For sure, probably you too. And you find yourself, or at least I did, judging him not quite so harshly. And that's a complicated thing, right? Because you end up feeling like maybe you're getting duped by a seriously bad guy, you know, with a little bit of charisma. But there doesn't seem to be a ton of duplicity around him. You know, somehow the fact that he's not even very apologetic, it kind of makes him seem more genuine. So Martirano's dad had a restaurant in Boston. A lot of mob personalities hung around there. He and his brother kind of got involved in that world. Now, Martirano himself actually had an offer from the University of Tennessee to play football and a few other places too. But he was dyslexic. You know, he didn't think he could do it. And he was already in pretty deep with the mob. So his life was kind of going in a certain direction. At one point when he was very young, his brother got in some trouble. There was a man who was apparently going to testify and send him away to jail for a very long time, or, you know, maybe there was some danger of harm, you know, to his brother. It's a little unclear, but that was the first person Martirano killed, that, that potential witness. And it went on from there. 
He became closely tied with the Winter Hill Gang with Whitey Bulger. And the interesting thing is that according to him, you know, he never made money from killing anybody. He would get his expenses paid for, but the the act of killing for him was supposedly this matter of principle or of business. You know, he wasn't a contract killer you could pay to go do something like that. But it's also true that, yes, he did make his money through this criminal world, right? So he was making it through, you know, the same the same things Whitey Bulger was making his money from. And it seems like to him, his role in that world, you know, part of his job was killing people. But, okay, let's let's hit the pause button here. Let's not go too far with this idea of morality because some of the killings in his life are egregious. You know, the one that's the most shocking uh, is, is a black man named Hubert Smith got in a fight with one of Martirano's associates. The next day, Martirano confronted him in a bar, didn't feel that Hubert Smith was respecting him or giving him the answers he wanted. So he ends up following him from the bar, finds him at his car, shot him, but didn't just shoot him. He also shot the 19-year-old woman and the 17-year-old boy that were with him. So he murders these three, right? And that gives you kind of an idea of this is not all, you know, honor killings or things like that. But anyway, Martirano at the time was in Florida when he got the call to kill Roger Wheeler. He was actually a fugitive himself at that point. He was wanted for fixing horse races, but he was still very much a part of the Winter Hill gang. And if you believe Mike Huff, there is both an element of loyalty to that from guys like Whitey Bulger and his associates toward Martirano, a little bit, but maybe there's also a lot of fear there. They were not going to cut this guy loose because, again, in his own mind, Martirano operated on an honor system. And if you violated that honor, well, people like Whitey Bulger knew what this guy was capable of. They knew that their lives could very much be in danger. So he's still part of that crew. And after a couple years in Florida, he got the call again, 1981. Got the call from Bulger and, you know, his big time partner, this guy, Steve Flemmy, who they called the rifleman, saying, we need you to kill Roger Wheeler. And it seems like the big push for this comes from Paul Rico, who, if you read between the lines, beyond just the fact that, you know, he's scared of going to jail and scared of losing this big money stream, it seems like he doesn't like Roger Wheeler either, and he wants him gone. It is worth mentioning here at this point, Wheeler himself is starting to become a little nervous. Not nervous enough, clearly. You know, he's not going to sell. He's not going to back down. But he is starting to get a little scared. Todd Leonard wrote about this in Golf Digest, a really nice, complete account of the whole thing. And here's what he said about Wheeler. Quote, If Roger Wheeler had once thought the idea of needing protection was absurd, that view changed drastically over the last months of his life. Wheeler was growing increasingly concerned that the men he'd hired to run and protect the world highlight business he'd purchased in 1978 were skimming from his profits. Indeed, just a couple of months before his death, Wheeler was said to have had his pilot take his Learjet up for a test flight before boarding it. I hope they don't bomb my plane today, Wheeler had quipped. End quote. And there are stories of increasing paranoia about personal safety. Again, all of this is too little, too late, but there are signs at the end that he's starting to see what he's coming up against. You know, this is not your typical business rival. There might be something worse here. Martirano accepts the job. And as everybody knew pretty quickly after the killing was done, you know, this guy is a pro. He's certainly got the experience. In May, he flies from Florida to Oklahoma City. You know, as Huff points out, this was a time when you didn't need ID to do that. You could pay cash fly up there. They rent a car in Oklahoma City. Again, they're paying cash. And this is smart, too, because Oklahoma City is not Tulsa. It's away from it a little bit. 
And he has as his partner, again, this guy Joe McDonald, who is also a fugitive. He robbed a post office for stamps, apparently. He's also a killer. You know, in fact, Huff says that McDonald killed someone in Boston in the 60s and was actually hidden by Paul Rico when he still worked for the FBI. So maybe McDonald owes some people a few favors here. They drive from Oklahoma City to Tulsa. They stay at the Tradewinds Hotel. You know, somehow, and this is pretty blurry, Martirano didn't really remember this part, but somehow they get a new license plate for their rental, probably from a stolen car. They put the new plate on, and that becomes very key because the witnesses at the murder actually get the plate number. They give it to the police, but it leads them nowhere. So now they're in Tulsa. Martirano hasn't even seen Roger Wheeler, doesn't even have the picture. He just has a description of a, you know, quote, a ruddy guy. He knows where he works. They actually scout Telex, the company. They go look at the headquarters, but what they see is that there's a camera there. So they don't like that. But then they got information, almost certainly from Paul Rico, that on that Wednesday, he would be playing golf. They even knew his tea time. This was very complete stuff. And in the meantime, Steve Flemmy, the rifleman, Whitey Bulger's, you know, co-boss, if you want to call him that, or his, you know, first in command, he has guns shipped down from Boston on a Greyhound bus to Tulsa, Martirano picks those up. It's the 38 snub nose and the machine gun. You know, again, just in case they have to get into a massive firefight with the cops. So Wednesday comes, May 27th. They drive to Southern Hills. There's no guardhouse. Or if there is, there's nobody in it. They drive in with no problem at all. And at that point, it's just a matter of waiting. Wheeler played golf. He lost money to a man named Bob Allen, who later said it was an exceptionally good day for him. And in Dave Kindred's story, you know, Wheeler tells Alan, all right, every dog has its day. He says it good naturedly. And as he's leaving the golf shop, this is what he supposedly says to George Matson, the golf shop manager and the guy who eventually found his body. He says, quote, I'll see you Saturday. Be sure to get my handicap up. These boys are killing me. End quote. Now, that is the kind of thing you'd read in a story, right? Did he actually say that? He may have. Why not? It's, you know, reasonable, but it's pretty perfect. It's pretty, as a last thing, these boys are killing me, as your last words, it's perfect enough to make me suspicious, personally. And I don't mean about Dave Kindred. I mean about whoever told the story. But again, there's no reason it couldn't happen. Maybe he said it. But imagine those as your last words right before you get murdered. So he walks to the parking lot. Martirano's waiting in his car close to the Cadillac. The man coming out seems to match the description of Wheeler. And here's Martirano in his own words describing what happened next. Quote, We spot his caddy. And this is me saying this, that's the Cadillac, you know, not the golf caddy. But remember, I've never seen this guy, so we park a few rows closer to the club. I'm in full disguise. We picked up that stuff at a theatrical store in Tulsa. Full beard, sunglasses, a baseball cap. Finally, I see a guy coming down the hill from the club to the parking lot. Might be Wheeler. I let him walk past our car, then I fall in behind him. If he gets in the caddy, I clip him. If he goes to another car, just keep walking. But it's him. He's getting in the car. He doesn't hear me. He's about to close the door, but I grab it to keep it open. He jumps back in the seat, startled, and I let him have it. One shot between the eyes, 38 snub nose. End quote. The gun falls apart. Bullets fly everywhere doesn't matter. Roger Wheeler is dead. They get out of there, made it comfortably out, you know, before any cops arrived. 
dumped a gun in the Arkansas River, actually sent the machine gun and everything else back in the Greyhound bus to Boston. You know, they didn't use that one. No reason to throw it out. They switched the plates on the car back. You know, they put the original plates back on, drove back to Oklahoma City, returned the car, no ID, bought a plane ticket for Florida, no ID, and they were gone. 11 people witnessed some aspect of this, including the little girl in the pool that we mentioned. But you can imagine the police didn't really get anything from them beyond maybe some physical descriptions that were a little bit contradictory. And in the end, they didn't know much in the immediate aftermath. In Mike Huff's interview, you know, he goes through his investigation, which lasts a very long time. And part of the reason it lasts so long is that they're obstructed by the FBI in Boston, especially by John Connolly, who was Whitey Bulger's protector, even though at this time, nobody knows it. We told you about Brian Halloran, the guy they originally asked to do the job. He tried to inform on them all. Bulger was tipped off. Bulger killed him. Well, as Mike Huff and the Tulsa guys are investigating, first, they chase a bad lead on the driver who matches the description of this known criminal in Oklahoma and the FBI, or I should say the, you know, the corrupt faction of the FBI is very happy for them to chase that. Apparently there's a Dixie mafia connection there. So they lose time kind of following that lead. Huff says that they actually chase it down for literal years. And at some point, and he thinks the FBI knows what's happening this whole time, by the way, but at some point they get a tip from the Massachusetts state police. And that for the first time puts them onto the guys who actually did it. That information from the state police all came from Halloran, apparently, before he died. But it was still cryptic. They still didn't really know anything concrete. And unlike the FBI, they didn't have the data. You know, there was no internet. It was much harder for them to put the puzzle pieces together than it might be today. And I read this and I kind of wonder, well, you know, didn't Wheeler's kids know that maybe it was the highlight connection? But that we don't know. You know, and even the Massachusetts state police are leaking stuff back, apparently, to the Winter Hill gang. You know, there's there's corruption everywhere. And at the same time, Huff and his guys are losing two to three years chasing down this false Dixie Mafia lead in Oklahoma City. But finally, somehow, probably from the Tulsa FBI, they get these names to check out. And the names are of Martirano and Joe McDonald, the real killers. And they start to hone in on High Lie and what happened. You know, and Mike Huff is the one who has the idea. Like, what about this guy, John Callahan? You know, this guy is more of a civilian. Remember, Callahan's the one who was CEO of World High Lie before Wheeler. He was very corrupt. He was in on the whole thing. But if they figure if they can turn anyone, it's him. You know, he's not ex-FBI. He's not a mob. He might be weak. He might be a little softer. So they want to find him. But again, they run into the stonewall of the FBI. And when they pressure the FBI enough, well, guess who interviews Callahan? It's John Connolly, Whitey Bulger's inside guy in Boston. And you'll never believe what he says. He says, no, no, Callahan denies it. And we believe him. But they still want to find him. They still want to talk to him themselves. So they put the word out. And then one day they get a call from the Dade Police Department in Miami saying, hey, you guys are looking for Callahan? And Huff says, yeah, you got him. And the guy says, well, in a manner of speaking, yes, we've got him. We've got him dead in the trunk of a car at the airport. It's not going to be too hard if you following the story to guess what happened there. Connolly, the FBI agent, got the very real sense that Huff was right, that Callahan was kind of ripe to turn. And he told Whitey Bulger and Steve Flemmy, and they told John Martirano, and they said, this guy is a rat, and if he doesn't die quick, we're all going to jail. So Johnny Martirano 
who now had killed 19 people, the last of them being Roger Wheeler, picked up Callahan from the Fort Lauderdale airport in a van. They had, you know, told Callahan to deliver money to him. And by the way, according to Huff, Mortarano and Callahan were very good friends, if not best friends. But he picked him up. You know, the entire inside of the van was covered with this kind of plastic roll called Visqueen. Apparently Callahan, you know, didn't notice or didn't suspect anything. And not long after they pulled out, Mordorano shot him in the head. And that was the 20th and final man that he killed. They had Callahan's car down there, a Cadillac, so they moved the body from the van into the trunk of that Cadillac. And here, here's a funny thing. Remember how, you know, the bullets when they killed Wheeler kind of fell out and people were wondering, is that some kind of signature? Is it some kind of trademark? Well, when they loaded Callahan into the trunk, apparently a dime fell out of somebody's pocket, landed on the body and stayed there. A total accident. But everybody afterward puzzled over that one. You know, what does the dime mean? Does it mean, is it because Callahan dropped a dime? Does it mean he's a rat? Another weird little coincidence there. They then drove the Cadillac to the Miami airport, parked it. And a couple of days later, the smell of the rotting body gave it away. And they found Callahan. So the investigation goes on. At one point, they do allow an interview with Bolger and Flemmy, but they get a guy to do the interview who doesn't really know much. You know, Huff doesn't get in on it. So this too kind of fizzles out. They try to interview Paul Rico, but he's protected too. And basically all Huff could do was try to keep the case alive. Even if it was just alive, you know, barely, you know, and this is hard because some very powerful people wanted it to die. And years and years and years go by. Huff testifies before Congress in 2000. In the meantime, Whitey Bulger was informed that indictments were coming down on a variety of other crimes he'd done. So as of 1994, he went on the lam. Steve Flemmy was arrested in 95 on those same charges. And in 2001, at last, finally, thanks to Huff's work and the work of a, a number of other people, these indictments come down for all of them for the murder of Roger Wheeler. Martirano, who shot Wheeler, was arrested in 1995, and as Todd Leonard wrote in Golf Digest, the tips that led to his arrest came from the FBI, likely by way of Bulger himself. So Bulger and Flemmy turned on him, and Martirano, who was heartbroken at this, eventually turned right back on them. He became a government witness, and that term, government witness, is very important to him. You can see it on the 60 Minutes interview he did. That's a very big distinction, because that meant for him that he publicly stood up you know, in front of everybody and said what he said. He wasn't an informant. He wasn't a rat working behind the scenes. He was doing it all out in the open. And again, he was heartbroken to learn that Bulger and Flemmy were informants themselves. He called it the worst day of his life when he figured that out. And that's why he did it. You know, he thought, you know, these guys are rats, so I'm going to stop them from being rats. Testified against both of them. Later testified against John Connolly, the FBI agent, helped put him in jail. And eventually in 2011, Whitey Bulger finally caught him. He was in Santa Monica, California after more than a decade on the run and they got him. Now, you may have noticed that a lot of people in the story meet some unsavory fates. Brian Halloran gets murdered. John Callahan gets murdered. Roger Wheeler gets murdered. Paul Rico, when they get him for the murder, Martirano testified against him too. Paul Rico first gets thrown into a Miami contract jail for three months. You know, and he's in his 70s at this point. He is beaten severely by inmates. By 2004, they think he's stable enough to be flown to Tulsa. And though the defense at that time pleaded for medical care in Tulsa, and, you know, among other things, for the judge to have the shackles on his bed removed in the hospital, 
The prosecution opposed it. The judge sided with them. And Paul Rico had a massive hemorrhage and died in a Tulsa hospital shackled to his bed. Steve Fleming is still alive. He's in jail for life. John Connolly still alive. The FBI agent. He was in jail until 2021. He's 83 now. They released him on sort of medical clearance related to COVID. Again, they caught Whitey Bulger in jail in 2011 after decades on the run. They caught him in California. He went to prison. He was stabbed in the neck at one point, spent a month in the infirmary, was transferred to Florida, where he started having night terrors, was eventually confined to a wheelchair. And in 2018, now in West Virginia, he was beaten to death at age 89 by another mafia hitman who used a padlock and a shiv. One of the women he killed, you know, in his heyday, when he died, her brother said publicly, quote, he died the way I hoped he was always going to die, end quote. An opinion shared, I'm sure, by many people. Now, of all these guys, Martirano, the man who killed 20 people that he remembers, had the best of it. He got out of jail in 2007, part of his plea deal. He's 83 now. Again, he's still alive today. In the 60 Minutes interview, this is more than a decade old at this point, but Steve Croft asked him at the end, is there anything that could get you to kill again? And he says, not that I can think of. And Croft asks, not even Whitey Bulger? You know, he was still on the run then. And Martirano raises an eyebrow. He says, well, then he has a small little laugh. And as for Wheeler and his legacy, you know, I go back to Todd Leonard's story. He spoke to Kerry Cosby, the director of golf at Southern Hills. And Cosby didn't have much memory of the killing. He was young. But something he said to Leonard gave me a little chill or a feeling at least of how much this disturbed the community, the family. He said, quote, I drive by the Wheeler estate at 41st and Lewis almost every day to take my son to school. We don't see any of the Wheeler family here anymore. I know they still live in Tulsa, but we don't see them. End quote. The powers that reached out that day from Florida, from Boston to Oklahoma, they left quickly. They would never come back, but you can still feel the impact they made. And I get the sense that if the effects are still felt today, 43 years after it happened, they're probably going to be felt forever. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music for today's episode was called Man in the River by our old pals Lobo Loco. And if you liked what you heard here, well, guess what? Golf Digest has a couple other podcasts that you should definitely check out. My pal Luke Kurdanin has one called Golf IQ. That's on golf instruction. Really great listen. And every week, the Loop podcast also comes on. Chris Powers, Steve Hennessy, Alex Myers. That's really great, too. So you can check those out and you can sign up for all of them and find them all, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. Like and subscribe and all that. And uh, hope you have a... An awesome 2024, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you.